Spirit, come this morning. Come and open the words, the, the mouths of those who will read your story. That you may speak again. Open my mouth that I might speak of your love. Of our condition, our response to each other and to you. And of your grace towards us. Open our ears that we may hear that. And our hearts that we may respond to you. And hear your appeal to us this morning. Come Holy Spirit. Fill us, we pray, once again this morning. For your word to us. The first reading is taken from the book of Psalms, Psalm 133, and can be found on page 625 of the Church Bibles. Psalm 133. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Our second reading is from the Gospel according to Luke chapter 15, beginning at verse 11. Jesus tells the parable of the lost son. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. 
I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hard servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, but your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So the father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when, his, when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus' story of the prodigal son, possibly one of the best known stories in the Bible, if not beyond. Well known, amazingly rich. I guess many of us will have heard it first as a small child, read it in a little, uh, a little picture storybook, Heard it many, many times since then. A story we never seem to get to the bottom of. A man had two sons. It's a story which goes right to the heart of the gospel, the good news that God has for us. Tracing with poignancy the plight, the plight of us all. We can, I guess, identify with the younger son, who sets off from home, leaves home, to set off to make it on his own, who takes all his resources with him, sets off to seek his fortune. It's the theme of our Western world, isn't it? I did it. 
my way. But as so often, it all goes tragically wrong. It's repeated in so many films and documentaries. Vibrant, youthful hope turns to bitter despair. Vulnerable young women are snared in a web of shame. Purposeless young men are caught in a spiral of drugs and violence. And then into their despair, as the darkness closes in, comes a gleam of light, a memory of home. Could there still be a welcome for me in my mother and father's house? Is there a yellow ribbon tied around that old oak tree? Is there still a haven for me there? A place where I can lick my wounds and regroup and face the world again. And that, says Jesus, is God's message to each one of us. Our choices have caught us up and cleaned us out. We've sown the wind and reaped the whirlwind. Trapped by sin, whether we recognize it or not, we are out in the dark. Yet still in our hearts, there is a glimmer of light, an echo from far away and long ago. And the reason why gospel, the message of God to us, means good news is that that glimmer, that echo, does not disappoint us, does not deceive us. Even lost and far away as we are, that glimmer of light, that echo of hope is true. There is a home for us to go to if we will only turn around. Like the prodigal son, if we come to ourselves and with weary legs and aching heart, we turn again home. As St. Augustine, a third century bishop in Africa, so long ago put it, Heavenly Father, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. But remember, this story is not just a story of the prodigal son. This is a story of two brothers. A man had two sons. So today, I want to look at the parable of the alienated brothers. How good and pleasant it is, says the psalm, when brothers dwell together in unity. But these two brothers couldn't even dwell together, let alone in unity. A man had two sons, two brothers, but they couldn't even live together. We all know what happens to amicable families once money gets involved, once there's an inheritance at stake. It's the, it's the key uh, ingredient of so many murder mysteries, isn't it? I was watching Midsummer Murders only a couple of weeks ago, and there it was again, an inheritance, two brothers, one recognized, one not. Well, here is not only the younger son who has left home with his share of the inheritance up front, better to grab it now while you can get it than wait and see if it comes later on. 
but there's an older son as well. Indirectly mentioned twice in the first two lines of this story. He's the other of two sons whose younger brother takes center stage and after his brother's outrageous demand is taken seriously by their father, he is one of the beneficiaries as the resources are divided up. Now, if we were contemporary hearers of this par parable, if we were listening to Jesus as he told the original story, and if we weren't too distracted by the younger brother's extraordinary behavior, then we'd have expected two responses from the older brother at this point. Responses which are strikingly absent. Firstly, we'd expect the older brother to refuse the part of the inheritance offered to him as a protest against the outrageous demand of his younger brother. No, we can't do that. What do you think you're playing at? We can't have our inheritance now. I would never receive that. That is my father's resource. That is my father's wealth. We don't hear that at all from the older brother. He's silent. Secondly, we'd expect him, being closest to both sides in the dispute, to take up the traditional role of intermediary and reconciler. Brother, let's talk to my father. Father, let's, let's bring this thing together. Let's get over this problem. Again, the older brother is silent. We think of the older brother, I guess, as we listen to this story, as the dutiful son, rightfully angry against his younger brother, who's treated their father so shamefully. Yet these telling silences let us know that all is not well between the older brother and his father, even from the very beginning of the story. By accepting his share of the inheritance up front, profiting by his uh, younger brother's leap from grace, and by refusing to intervene and thereby ridding himself of uh, a housemate with whom he would be expected to share the house and the household after his father's death, the younger son has already put himself into a place of power and a place of resistance. Well, we're going to pick up the story with the older brother later on, some years later. The younger son has run through all of his father's resources. He's hit rock bottom. He's realized that the only person in the world who is likely to have any concern for him now in the terrible situation that he's in is the father whom he has insulted and, in effect, robbed. And so he takes the courageous step to face the shame, the ignominy, and to go home and to throw himself on his father's mercy. And he's going to have to run the gauntlet of village hostility to do that because the village have watched on and seen his outrageous behavior. And they will all have sided with the father and the older son. He's got to come through that to make it to his father so that he can ask for mercy. And what does he find when he gets there? A hug, generosity, public honor, and a party. The fatted calf is slaughtered, 
is butchered and cooked and preparations are made. And then music and celebration begins in the home, calling back all those who are out in the fields to join in a village party to celebrate his return. For some reason, the older brother hasn't been forewarned of this, of the party that's about to happen. Maybe because he's been out on the fields far away and he's been you know, out of communication, no mobile phones, there's no network signal up in the far field, you know, and they couldn't let him know. Or maybe because the father suspected that all was not well in his heart and that he would try and stop the party if he were told too soon. Anyway, arriving back at the courtyard of his house, he finds celebrations in full progress. And what's his immediate response? Excitement, enthusiasm, gladness. Hey, there's a party! Fantastic! What's the good news? No. He's immediately suspicious. What's going on and why don't I know about it? And learning of his brother's ignominious return, he faces a choice. Go in and congratulate him, welcome him home, maybe through gritted teeth, or stay outside and insult his father. The thing is, in Middle Eastern culture at the time of Jesus, the eldest son had a special place in his father's household. He was the one who would stand by the door and greet the guests. He would give them a drink. He would show them to the food. He would offer the hospitality on behalf of his father. If the eldest son disagreed with the statement that the father was making, then it was for him to take that up in private later on, not in public insulting his father and shaming him before the world. And so by doing that, he puts himself on the same level as the younger son who has insulted and shamed his father all those years ago, the brother whom he despises. Well, the father hears that his son is stamping around outside, fuming, and instead of doing the, giving the obvious response from that community, from that culture, sending a message to insist on his presence, which would, of course, diminish his son. Instead, he leaves the party to go out to his son and to invite him in, to invite him to come home. It was this kind of unexpectedly extraordinarily generous offer to the younger son which blew him away, which overwhelmed him. My son, you were dead and now you're alive. You must come in so that I can celebrate my good fortune in having you in my home again. For the younger son, it blows him away. For the older son, he reaps a tirade. The silent rebellion that we saw in the older son at the start of the story has gone on festering under the surface all the way through. And it's apparent now in his abrupt words in response to his father. Look! Now every other conversation between two members of, th of this family have started with, with, um, with respectful words. My father, my son. 
But this older son, this one who we think of as the dutiful son, he tears his father off a strip in public. Look, you never even gave a party to me. He accuses his father of favoritism to his younger son. To me, you never even gave a goat. In fact, he would rather not be with his father and his family celebrating. He'd rather be out with his own friends. You never even gave me a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. What does he think the father is doing with this party? The son, the younger son, has come back and has declared himself to be a servant. I'm not worthy to be your son. You must just treat me as one of your paid servants. Just if I could just have food to live on. The older son has also made himself a servant. You never even gave me a goat for all my labor all these years so that I could go and have a party with my friends. He makes himself to be a servant of his father. So each have explicitly or implicitly withdrawn their love from their father and made themselves out to be a servant. But the father doesn't want servants. He wants children. He wants sons. So for each of them, he humbles himself to come out of his home and to publicly appeal to them to come home, to invite them home and share in his joy. But here is the tragic difference. The younger son knows that he is not worthy to be at this party. He knows that he has shamed his father and he has thrown away his relationship of honor with his father and he is, he is not worthy to be the, the guest of honor at this party. He's ashamed to be so. The older son he he can't he thinks that the father is throwing the party to show his favoritism towards his younger son. He thinks that the party is a reward to the young son for coming home. And he wants a share in that, that sense of honor and favor from his son, from his father. He can't see that the party is secondary to the father. It's just an expression of the father's immense joy that his son who was lost to him has come home and has joined their family again. For the older son, this party is a, is a sign of favoritism. For the younger son, it's a sign of unmerited favor. Well, the story has no ending. In fact, we don't know whether the older son came in to join the family. We are just left with the question from the father. The statement that he must celebrate his sons who come home, and the implicit question, will you not come home so that I can celebrate you too?
those who were first listening to Jesus would have, it, would have identified so strongly against the younger brother and therefore so strongly with the older brother that they would have heard the father's entreaty as directly appealing to them as well. So the question facing them would be, how will I respond to my father's entreaty? What will be my response? What will be ours? Though I'm not the oldest brother in my family, I am an older brother. I am one of those people who has never smoked or drunk myself into a stupor, who have never gone off the rails, who have always towed the line, who have always been at home on holidays and, you know, been out in the fields picking the wild oats for my father in his farm. I was the one up on the fields, you know, taking the night watch for the sheep and in the, sh in the, in the sheep house doing the lambing. I was that son. I am that son who is now a vicar, you know, who cannot understand what it's like to go off and spend your resources on wild and reckless living. I don't know what that feels like. It doesn't interest me. I am a older son, an older brother. So this question is very, very potent to me. What would I do if someone like that had taken half of my, you know, half of my resources as I lived at home and gone off and spent it all in outrageous ways and then come home demanding more? How would I feel about such a younger brother? Would I be glad to have them home, part of my father's house again? Or would I too be secretly fuming? In the, in the West, we're very hot on personal rights, aren't we? Well, God loves it when we're defending other people's rights. The, the, the orphan and the widow, he loves it when we do that because that's on his heart. Those who are vulnerable and in need, he loves to defend them. And he loves us to do that for him. But to be absolutely honest, most of our emotional effort is taken up defending our own rights, isn't it? Ask yourself these questions. Okay. Would you fight for compensation for your neighbor if for them to receive that compensation meant that you would lose yours? Would you agree for a colleague to be given a second chance if that meant scuppering your opportunity for promotion? If test papers were remarked to make it fair for one of your school friends and the net result was that you did worse out of the remarking, how would you feel? Do you support fairly traded goods even if you have to pay more for your clothes or your food? The problem is, brace, sorry, grace, grace is a brilliant concept if you need it. 
it's wonderful to be the younger son and to come home and to find that your slate has been wiped clean and everything, everything that you have done wrong has been set aside and you are now free to join your father's family again. That is fantastic. What a blessing. And grace is a very noble concept if you are initiating it. How we admire the father who is able to set aside his own uh, hurt and insult and take that noble role, that, that mature and loving role and welcome his son back. What a powerful character. But grace is a dreadful concept if you're the one who stands to lose from it for a cause that you didn't choose. Perhaps you resent God for blessing newcomers to faith with blessings with experiences more than yours. Or is it more basic than that? Is there a family member, a brother or sister, or a brother or sister in Christ who has hurt you dreadfully? There's an opportunity for reconciliation, but that would mean letting go of that hurt, that resentment inside you, and you just can't do that. But to enter into the joy of our own sonship, our daughtership, our, our child relationship with our Heavenly Father, we have to let go of our own rebellions, whether they're out there in the open like the younger son or whether they're hidden and seething away in secret like the older son. We have to be ready to accept our Father's embrace and the painful struggles of reconciliation. How good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters can dwell together in unity. Now this isn't just sentiment. That psalmist who wrote those words had got story after story to reflect on of dysfunctional family of brothers who hated each other. Cain killed Abel. Jacob deceived Esau. Joseph both did to his brothers and his brothers tried to kill him and then sold him into slavery. Families are God's chosen tool for the creation and the recreation of his world, his kingdom. Which means that on God's heart is the healing of his broken families. The division of families wrecks God's family. It chains people to the past and it separates us ourselves from our loving Father. Whereas accepting God's reconciliation and learning to live together in unity, really tough though it is, it brings what? The psalmist says, how good and pleasant it is for brothers and sisters to dwell together in unity, for there the Lord commands his blessing, even life forevermore. That blessing will be yours. The blessing of family, the blessing of intimacy, the blessing of healing, the blessing of union with your heavenly Father. Some of us know that we are prodigal sons. 
And we are amazed to find our Heavenly Father running towards us to forgive us with open, outstretched arms to welcome us back into his home. Others can look back to the time when we received God's undeserved grace and his goodness to us with gratitude and joy. And yet somehow over the years, we have become the older brother. Challenged to return to our father again, though we thought we'd never been away. Whether you've traveled far from God or whether you've tried to stay close by his side, your heavenly father still loves you and welcomes you and wants you in his home. I heard the story of a money break broker who was hugely successful, had a wonderfully successful career and gained all of the um, all of the riches and the resources and the kind of all the good things that he longed for. Suddenly he was called to the deathbed of his father. His father whispered to him, my son, I'm so proud to have been your father. I love you so much. And that successful money broker broke down into tears. Because all his life, those were the only words that he had longed to hear. And everything else he had achieved had just been filling the void with things that he thought would take away the pain of not hearing those words. And now finally, the void had been filled. But perhaps we still aren't confident in how much our Father loves us. Perhaps we have not yet heard those words from him as to how much he values us. We've struggled all our life to accept his purposes, to do his work. We've done our very best to work for him, yet still we feel unsure, insecure. Maybe that older son just wanted to hear that he was loved by his father. And because he couldn't hear that, he misread what his father was doing with the party. He thought it was yet another sign that his father loved his younger brother more than him who had stayed there all those years. The lack of a calf for him was, was another sign of lack of affection, lack of approval that he had fought with his labor to earn. How many of us are like that? We do our Christian work, our Christian duty because we are not sure that our Heavenly Father loves us. Well, Jesus, good news for you is that our Heavenly Father loves you and is so grateful to you for your fellowship with Him, for being part of His family, for your labor on His behalf. And His party for you will be very, very joyful if you can just hold on in there. One of my favorite stories, having been abroad myself, 
is of the missionary who came home after many years of long service abroad for his Lord Jesus. He reaches America. It was an American missionary. And he comes back on a big ship. And as the ship draws into harbor, there are balloons and streamers and there's a band playing. And there's an amazing sense of coming home. But all of the passengers on the ship are kept back whilst, unbeknown to the other passengers, the chief and most important passenger on the ship, the President of the United States of America, descends from the ship to band playing and balloons flying into the air. Once the President's party has left, the other passengers are allowed to leave the ship and this missionary leaves, comes down the gangplank onto the harbor and finds waiting for him no band, no balloons, no streamers, not even a single member of his mission organization or his family. He is there alone at the end of all those years of service. He sits on his luggage, very downhearted, and he says, Lord, I served you all these years, and here I am, alone. There's nobody here for me. And a little whisper comes in his, ye- in his ear. Son, you are not yet home. You are not yet home. And when you are home, the party will be very great. I don't know where you are with God. I don't know whether you feel like a younger brother. You've blown your chances. You've rejected him. You've gone away and you don't know if there's a welcome still there for you. I don't know if you feel like an older brother. You've been there all the time and somehow God has never been there for you. But you are not yet home. And God is longing to welcome you to him. To welcome you home. And as you cross that river, the trumpets will sound for you on the other side. Jesus said to his disciples, In my Father's house are many rooms, and I am going now to prepare a place for you, and I will return that you may be with me where I am, and I will take you to be with me. Will you let Jesus welcome you and lead you back to his Father's house, to one of the rooms that has been specially prepared for you? Whatever the struggle of this journey, the homecoming will be a great party if you will come on home with the Father who comes out to you in his older son. Usually I end with a prayer, but today I'm going to ask the band to pray us a prayer. This is a prayer of a simple song of love to our Father, to our Savior. If you are ready to sing this song of love, then do so. If you are not ready,
let the Father sing his simple song of love to you because he loves you and is waiting for you to come home with him.